Open in your Bibles to First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand so that we can get a Bible to you and you can follow along with us in our Bible study. First Thessalonians chapter 5. I have been absolutely thrilled with the response that we've had from the last few weeks of Bible study that we've had here, talking about the rapture of the church and of the end times. Um, A lot of excitement, a lot of people uh, getting charged up about the the things that God has shared with us in his word. Um, I've had a thousand questions thrown at me, which which I love, you know, people wanting to understand how things fit together. Uh, people fact-checking, which is awesome, you know, be Bereans, search the scriptures. And by the way, I do have to um, admit I made an error. I, I told you last week that the Hebrew word Shabuah, you remember that? That it's only found two places, Daniel 9 and Genesis 29. And, and I'm wrong. If you, if you put that in the concordance in the singular week, it is only in two places, but if you put the plural, it does appear in other places. So it is used other places. It is also used to speak of a literal week at times, you know, but the literal meaning of Shabuah is a period of seven, not necessarily seven days, seven anything, you know, so just like we would say a dozen, like a dozen donuts or a dozen eggs, you know, it's, it's, so that's the word. So there. I have clarified it, you know, thank you for fact checking also, um, good stuff. But where we left off, I was just about to tell you the day and the hour that Jesus is coming back. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) No, just kidding. But seriously, in our study last time, as we looked at the prophecy that was given to Daniel in the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel, What we obtained there or saw or discovered is a clearer understanding of the fullness of the prophetic picture. God laying out for us the things that he is going to do. And in verse 24 of Daniel chapter 9, what we were given essentially was God's entire to-do list. How many people use to-do list to remind yourself of the things you've got to get done? Well, God does too. And in chapter 9 of Daniel, verse 24, the entirety of God's to-do list from the beginning to the end of human history is given to us there. He says that the seven things that he is going to do in that time is that he's going to finish the transgression and make an end of sins and make reconciliation for iniquity and bring in everlasting righteousness. And seal up the vision, the completeness of what he's given, and seal up the prophecy that is fulfill all that's been foretold. And then finally, number seven is to anoint the most holy or the coronation of King Jesus, you know, which will will be at his return when all things are fulfilled. And so the entirety of God's to do list given to us there in one single verse And we saw that it will be through the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ that those seven objectives will be completed. It was in the first coming 
that the first four things on that to-do list were completed. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in the everlasting righteousness. That up is upheld for anyone who puts their faith in Christ. You have been given everlasting righteousness. You have passed from death to life. Now, that fourth objective carries through into the second coming where he will you know seal up the vision and seal up the prophecy and anoint the most holy and that everlasting righteousness carries through forever and ever and ever because our sin has been put away once and for all now the time frame that daniel was given wherein god would complete his seven things that are on his to-do list is a span of 490 years. And we saw that the first 483 years would usher in the first coming of Jesus Christ, wherein the first four of his objectives would be completed. And we looked at that. If you weren't here last week, I would suggest that you pick up the recording or check it out online and go through. We cannot review that. It's way too technical and we don't have time, you know. But 483 years to usher in the first coming of Christ. It was foretold to the day. And in Luke 19, Jesus held them accountable for not knowing the time of their visitation because Daniel told them when he would come the first time. Now, it will be the second coming in the last seven years of that 490 years is what will usher in the second coming of Jesus Christ back to the earth wherein the rest of God's to-do list will be completed. Well, the period of time that we find ourselves in right now is an unknown gap of time that exists in God's calendar between the first coming of Christ and the final seven years that are in Daniel's timetable or the finishing of the prophetic picture. And the period of time that we are in is called the church age. The church is the instrument that God is dealing with right now. He hasn't forsaken Israel. He hasn't replaced Israel. He has set Israel aside for a season And he is right now building up what the Bible calls the bride of Christ. It's made up of neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave or free, regardless of race or background or any other thing. If you will put your faith in Christ, you are accepted and embraced into this entity that God is using and building right now called the church. And that's where we are. We are in the church age, this period right now where God is saving. You say, okay, why are there two comings of Jesus Christ? Why would there be a first coming and then a second coming? What's the deal with that? Why would God do things that way? And the answer is very simple. It's this, is that the problem that humanity has is sin. And it isn't exclusive just to the Jew, but it's a worldwide epidemic. Every man, woman, and child that has ever lived since Adam and Eve walked the earth has this problem, this plague that is sin. And Jesus, in his first coming, he brought the solution to sin. But here's the problem. Not, it's not a problem, but it's just the fact. Is that he came as a Jew 
to the Jews and for the Jews. He was an Israelite. He was of the seed of Abraham, the lineage of David. He was given to Israel, born in Bethlehem. His message, his gospel went forth to the Jew. And then he was crucified there in Israel. And nobody on the face of the planet would have been looking for him except for a Jew or someone who had access to Jewish understandings. So he came to the Jews and for the Jews, but when he died on the cross, he accomplished or purchased salvation for all, not just for the Jew, but for all of humanity. And so the cross, the blood, it paid for the sins of all that would put their faith in Jesus Christ. And if there had only been one coming, then salvation would only be to the Jew and only to the Jew that believes. But in that there's a second coming, it now allows time for the message of the gospel to go out to the nations so that the Gentiles can be heirs of the salvation that God has purchased at the hand of his son, Jesus Christ. And so that's the period that we're in right now. The gospel is going forth to the nations. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, Paul wrote and he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Listen, to the Jew first and also then to the Gentile. And so the first coming to the Jews as a Jew for the Jews. But after departing, Israel being set on the side on the back burner. Now the gospel goes to the Gentiles and the church is being built, is being Um, you you know, brought up. And so that's the reason for the second coming. Now, this was foreknown and ordained of God all the way from the very beginning, that that's the way it would go down. God knew that the nation of Israel, the Jews that were there at that time, that they would reject his son. God knew that that would happen. I always love reading the sermon that Stephen preached in Acts chapter 7, the first martyr in the early church. His audience was unbelieving Jews. His topic was unbelief. And he gave two examples in his sermon. He talked about the man Joseph, the son of Jacob. And he talked about the man Moses. Those were his two examples. And the reason he used those two examples is because essentially both Joseph and Moses had two comings and they were rejected the first time. Joseph, when he had his dreams that he would be the deliverer, was rejected by his brothers and sold as a slave. But when he appeared to them the second time, they received him and understood that this was the plan. Same thing with Moses. When he was 40 years old, he came to them. It says that he supposed that they would understand how God by his hand would deliver them. But it says that they understood not. And they said, who are you that you should rule over us? And they rejected him at his first coming. But when he came back 40 years later, they embraced, they understood that this was the plan of God. And so Stephen says, don't you understand? It's just history repeating itself again. You rejected, just like your fathers, you've rejected Christ at his first coming, but you won't reject him at his second. Jesus also understood that there would be two comings. His first act of public ministry, recorded in Luke chapter 4, after he comes out of the wilderness, fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. 
He goes into the Nazarene synagogue and it says that he looks for the scroll of Isaiah and he finds the place where it is written. And he, he turns to Isaiah chapter 61 and he reads these words. He says that the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, if you're looking at the thing, Jesus stopped at that point. After saying to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And it tells us there in Luke 4 that he rolled up the scroll at that point gave it back to the minister, and then said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your sight. Because all of what Isaiah wrote in that section there, verse 1 and the first part of verse 2, speaks of the first coming which was fulfilled in Christ, in the Nazarene synagogue. He stopped on purpose. Because the rest of what it says in Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 through 4 speaks of not the first coming, but the second coming of Christ. If you read on there, he says, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, and they might, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. And they shall build the old wastes, and they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. That all speaks of what will take place at the second coming. So it was God's plan from the very beginning, all of the things that went down concerning the first coming and the second coming. And where we find ourselves right now is in that period of time between the first coming and the second coming, known as the church age, wherein God will rule, uh, build his church, and then he will return. Now, the church age that we are in ends it doesn't go on forever and ever and ever there's an ending point and the point at which it ends is at an event that we've been looking at called the rapture a moment where god will step into human history jesus will appear in the clouds the trumpet will sound and we which are alive and remain that have put our faith in christ will be caught up literally snatched away in the twinkling of an eye And we will then be taken away to be with the Lord. Now, at some point after that, there's going to be a covenant that is signed. That's going to bring stability and peace in the Middle East. That's going to allow the Jews to rebuild their temple. And that's going to give power to a single individual over all of the affairs of the globe, the world. A man that we know biblically as the Antichrist or the man of sin or the son of perdition. At that point, when that covenant is signed, the last seven years of Daniel's prophecy begin. The 483 have passed, and the final seven will begin at that point. And it's a period of time that the Bible calls the tribulation or the indignation. There's a whole bunch of names that the Bible gives to that last seven-year period of time 
where God will pour out his wrath and his judgment upon a Christ-rejecting and sinful world. That will happen during the tribulation. Now, almost all Bible scholars, theologians, seminarians, students of Scripture believe in the seven-year tribulation. We see it clearly in Scripture as we go along. There are some that hold some real wacky views about the tribulation. There are some that say that the tribulation already passed. That the tribulation took place between the year 66 A.D., in the year 73 AD, when Rome came in and, you know, destroyed Israel there in the first century. And, and that's crazy. I mean, if you're going to take the Bible literally and not just confuse yourself to death, it's insane. Revelation chapters 6 through 19 describe for us what's going to happen during the tribulation. And that wasn't even written until 20 years after 73 AD. So to, to say that is, is a little bit crazy in my mind, to try to squeeze that into the scheme of things. It doesn't make sense. That's called a preterist view, if you've you know, ever come across that or ever do come across that. It's a little, little out there. There's problems with it. The other wacky view is that it's called an amillennialist view. And what that basically says is that the tribulation is over, and that we are now currently in the millennium or the thousand-year reign of Christ. That right now, Jesus is ruling and reigning upon the earth. That right now, Satan is bound for a thousand years and doesn't have access to planet earth. That right now, there is peace and prosperity in the world. And that's, that is the view of the amillennialist, that we are in the millennium right now. I have some problems with that. Because I'm watching some of these political conventions. And if Jesus is ruling and reigning right now, then we've got big problems globally, you know. Also, if Satan is bound right now, then his chains are way too loose. Because he still reaches, doesn't he? (laughs) And if this is peace and prosperity, you know. And another part of that amillennialist view that is fundamentally wrong, really, is that it, it, the, the, the idea is that it is now the church's responsibility to win the world for Christ. And that once we win the world for Christ, then Jesus will physically, literally return. Listen, if the church or any group of people could bring a dominion or an order or a Christ-likeness to this world, then there's no reason why Adam and Eve wouldn't be allowed to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If man possessed the capacity to rule and govern himself and bring subjection and order, then there's no reason why God would say, don't eat from that tree. It's fundamentally flawed. It doesn't make sense. So those are the wacky views, and now you know them. I wasted five minutes giving them to you. The rest of us, you know, that take the Bible literally, and we want God to just speak to us plainly, believe that the tribulation has not yet happened, that we are in the church age, Jesus hasn't come back yet, Satan isn't bound yet, and that we're waiting for the return of Christ. We're waiting for this time period, and it is coming. It is yet future, the tribulation. Now, among those of us that understand this, we have different views about this event that's called the rapture. When in the prophetic spectrum 
Will the rapture take place when God reaches in, interrupts, and takes his people out? There are some people that believe that the rapture will be before the seven years of tribulation. That's called pre-tribulation. It is pre-tribulation, before the tribulation, before the seven years. There are others that hold a view that it is pre-wrath. That is, the church will go through some of the tribulation, but that they'll be taken before the wrath of God is poured out. Now, I, I understand that, but the problem is that the whole thing is wrath. I mean, Revelation chapter 6, which gives to us the beginning of it, the people cry out and say, this is the day of the wrath of God. So wrath is from the very beginning. So that's a view that people have. It doesn't stand up, but it, it's a view that they have. There are others that hold what's called a mid-tribulation view, and that is the church goes through the first three and a half years of the tribulation, and then they get raptured before all hell breaks loose during the second three and a half years, mid-tribulation view. And then the fourth is a post-tribulation view. It's what I call bungee theology, because basically we get raptured at the end of the tribulation, and then we come back to earth with Christ right away, and... Uh, you know, that's basically the view, is that it's at the end of the tribulation. Uh, now, now listen, you can be wrong about this and still go to heaven. You're not unsaved if your timing is off or your speculation is off as to when the rapture. You know, it's funny, I'm, I, I'm, learning, I'm learning from watching these political conventions. I think, I don't, I, the voting age is 18, right? I'm 33 and I'm just now starting to understand politics a little bit. So voting age might be off. Well, I don't know. I'm not saying that. All, all I'm saying is this, is that what I'm observing, watching the political scene and spectrum as we come towards this election season, is that there is a way that makes sense but that people will believe just about anything. <laughs> you know? and, and that's what I'm observing as I watch all of this. There is a way that makes sense, but people will believe just about anything. Same thing holds true with the rapture. There is a way that makes sense scripturally, but people will believe just about anything. And you're entitled to that. I might be wrong. I don't think I am, but I could be. But because I have the pulpit tonight... For the remainder of the time, I'm going to share with you five biblical reasons why I believe the rapture will take place before the tribulation or before the signing of the covenant, which reveals to us who the Antichrist is. So if you're taking notes, and we will finish off the, the last few verses of Thessalonians 5 up to verse 11 there uh, as we wrap up towards the end. But, but why? How do we know that the tribulation, if we want to look at it from the biblical perspective, why it's pre-trib? So number one, if you're taking notes, the first reason is the very reason for the last seven years. The first reason why I believe the tribulation is... I'm sorry, the rapture is before the tribulation is because of the very reason for the last seven years. The tribulation time or the last seven years serve two purposes, two main purposes in God's agenda. Number one is to awaken the nation of Israel. In Daniel chapter 9 verse 24, when Gabriel first introduces to Daniel, that what he's about to say, he, he begins by saying, 490 years are determined upon thy people 
and upon thy holy city. Now that's very specific who these 490 years concern. It's for Israel as a nation, as an entity, for the Jewish people collectively. That's who it's for. That's who it concerns. And so, from Abraham all the way to Christ, Israel was the entity through which God worked in the world. It was the Jew that God was using from all that time, from Abraham all the way to Christ. Now, once they rejected Christ as an entity, as a body, collectively, not all Jews, Vicki, <laughs> not all Jews re- 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 refused. There were some that received, but as an entity, collectively, they rejected Christ, and thus they were placed upon the back burner. Not forsaken, not replaced, but moved to the back burner, and the heat was turned down. By the way, the heat is being turned back up as they're there on the back burner. I hope you're paying attention to that. So Israel's on the back burner right now, but there's coming a time, once the church is removed, that God is going to move them back onto the front burner, and he's going to begin to restore and revive Israel again. In Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, God, through the prophet Jeremiah, refers to the tribulation, and he calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. That's actually a name, a synonym for the tribulation. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob is Israel. It was Jacob whose name was changed to Israel who became the father of the Jewish people. And so the tribulation is a time when God will again deal with the Jew, even as Gabriel told Daniel, 70 weeks determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Now let me ask you, where was the church during the first 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy? The answer, there was no church on the earth during the first 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy. The church didn't begin until Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, after, you know, Israel was placed upon the back burner. So if the church wasn't on earth for the first 69 weeks or 483 years, why would the church be on the earth for the last seven? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't concern us. It's not our time. It's God, again, reviving and working with the nation of Israel. That's the purpose of the tribulation. The second purpose of the tribulation, not just to awaken the nation of Israel, but also to shake up the nations globally in plurality. The time of the tribulation will be a time of unparalleled judgment and wrath that God is going to pour out upon a Christ-rejecting and sinful world. Jesus said that except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. Daniel and Jesus both said that there, were t- there has never, ever been a time in human history that will be as bad as it will be during those days, and it will never be like that again. So destructive and so, you know, just dreary will be those days during that time of tribulation when God pours out his wrath and his judgment. There's many people that say the fact that God doesn't judge sin is a proof to me that God doesn't exist. 
for a God, a loving God, a holy God to just stand by and watch the things that are going on in the world and to not do something about it is to me proof that there is no God. No, the fact is that God is not at this time right now judging sin. This is the age of grace and he is extremely patient. It's like that debate that was going on in the college where the Christian was debating the atheist and they were debating in front of a crowd as to whether or not there's a god and it was the atheist's turn to take the stage and so he stood in front of the people there and he said i'll prove to you all right now that there's no god and here's how i'll do it god if you're real i give you permission and i give you five minutes to strike me dead right now and then he went silent and he waited for the remainder of his time up there Five minutes without saying a word, looking up to heaven, waiting to see if God would strike him down. And at the end of his time, the bell dung and he said, see, I've just proven to you that there is no God. And he stepped down smugly, thinking that he had made his point. And the Christian followed up and got into his, you know, place with smile on his face and people wondering, how's he going to respond to this? What's he going to say? And the Christian's time began and he said, You didn't prove that there's no God through your five minutes of wasted time. The only thing that you proved is that even the worst sinner can't exhaust the patience of God in five minutes. (laughs) And the truth is that right now, God is not pouring out wrath and judgment upon the world. It's storing up. He's waiting. But there's coming a time... When the cup of the grapes of God's wrath will be full and it will then be poured out without measure. And the world will feel the retribution and ramification for its rebellion and its sin and the shaking of its fist in the face of God. But during this time now, God is waiting. There are pockets of judgment. There is chastisement. There is correction. There is pleading as God lets us know that he's watching, that he's real. But what God's wrath really is, what we read in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, it is beyond anything that any of us could imagine. You say, well, what does that have to do with the rapture and the church? Everything, and here's why. Because 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 9 says this. It says that we, you and I, the church, that we are not appointed unto wrath. The very message of the gospel that we believe, that we preach, that we've received, is that Jesus Christ took upon himself the full penalty of God's wrath in your place and in mine. That the penalty that our sin deserved, the chastisement that would bring peace with God, according to Isaiah 53, was laid upon him. He took and absorbed the full weight of the wrath that you and I deserved. And when he hung on the cross, the last words that he said were, it is what? Finished. Tetelestai, complete, paid in full is what it means. And so therefore, for God to let the church go through the tribulation time would mean that we are receiving double payment for sin that's already been paid for. It's been paid for completely on on the cross. The time of tribulation that's coming upon this earth is the declaration of war that God is making against humankind. And the first thing that any kingdom does before it wages war against another kingdom is that it calls its emissaries home. 
And before God wages war upon planet Earth, pouring out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world, he will call his people home. He took Lot out of Sodom. He took Enoch out of the days of antiquity. Daniel was mysteriously missing in the days when Nebuchadnezzar set up his image and the Hebrew boys went through the fire. It's consistent throughout Scripture. God will call his people home. And so the tribulation, the purpose of it is to awaken the nation of Israel and to pour out judgment upon the nations that have rejected Christ. And neither one of those two things have anything to do with the church at all. We are not appointed unto wrath. The rapture will happen prior to the tribulation. That's reason number one. Reason number two for your notes, if you're taking, is that the Bible is very clear that no man will know the day or the hour of the rapture. What was the context of Jesus' declaration when he says, concerning the day and the hour, no man knows? It was concerning the time when one would be taken and the other one would be left. Two would be in the bed, one would be taken, the other left. Two grinding, one will be taken, the other left. He said, you don't know the day or the hour. Now listen, if the rapture happens at any point other than a pre-tribulation time, you and I know the day and the hour. Because Daniel, in both chapter 8 and also in chapter 12, he divides the last seven years into two equal segments of 1260 days we would know exactly to the day when the abomination of desolation, when, you know, when Antichrist goes into the temple and declares himself to be God, we would have it marked on our calendar because it's told to us in the scripture. If the rapture was mid-trib, we would know. We would say it's right there. We can count down the day. If it was post-trib, at the end of the tribulation, we would be able to mark the day. But no man can know the day or the hour. It will be like a thief in the night. It will come as a surprise before any of the other things go down. And here's what happens if you have that view. Here's the problem with it. Is that no longer are you and I looking, hastening for, awaiting, hoping in the return of Christ. But rather, we're awaiting, we're hoping for, we're looking towards the covenant that will be signed that will bring peace in the Middle East. We're looking for the temple to be rebuilt that will reinstitute the sacrificial system. We're looking for a one-world ruler and one-world currency, and we're, we're, lo- we're looking for the wrong things. But what did Jesus tell us to look for? He said, look for my return. He said, that's what's eminent. That's what's coming. And there is nothing that is to be fulfilled prior to that time when Jesus would come. If there is, then we're looking for the wrong thing. Well, Jesus can't come until they rebuild the temple. Jesus can't come until the covenant is signed and the last seven years go down. Jesus can't, there is no Jesus can't come until. Jesus could come at any moment. No man knows the day or the hour. It's got to be a pre-tribulation rapture, see? Reason number three, and I love this one. This one's, to me, the clearest. That is this, is that the scripture is perfectly clear that the church is removed prior to the revelation of Antichrist. Now, when is Antichrist revealed? It's at the signing of the covenant. That's what starts the seven years. That's what reveals who he is. Who brokers the covenant? That's the key question. 
In 2 Thessalonians, if you're in 1 Thessalonians, you could just turn a couple pages. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And listen to what Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 about this revelation of Antichrist. Look at verse 3. He says, Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, or an apostasy. And that man of sin, speaking of the Antichrist, be revealed, the son of perdition. And then he gives us a personality profile of the Antichrist in verse 4. He says, Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, what Paul is referring to in verse 4 is what the Bible calls, what Daniel called, the abomination of desolations. That's the biblical theological word for this act. And this will happen three and a half years into the seven. This man of peace... This man who solves the world's problems halfway through the seven years is going to go into the temple that's been rebuilt. He's going to put a stop to the sacrificial system and he's going to declare to the world and to the Jews that he is God. And it's what's going to start the last three and a half years of what's called the great tribulation. That's what Paul's talking. Then in verse five, he says, remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. Listen in verse 6. And now ye know what withholdeth, or restrains, that he, that is the Antichrist, might be revealed in his time. And here he's going to tell us, verse 7, here it is. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Now, what is this thing that he's talking about here, this mystery of iniquity that he's talking about? The mystery of iniquity talks about, it speaks to us of two things. It talks to us about the process of sin, and it talks to us about the product of sin. The mystery of iniquity, the process of sin. What is the process of sin? Is that it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. When you look at the pattern of humanity throughout the 6,000 years of man's history upon the earth. And you see a society that starts off in the fear of God, but slowly sin creeps in. And slowly, little by little, the process of sin, the mystery of iniquity, takes hold, grabs root. And corruption begins to infiltrate. And ultimately, it's brought to a place of absolute rot and disgust. It's the process of sin, the mystery of iniquity. It also speaks of the product of sin. What's that? Listen, this world is on a very specific course and it's heading to a final culmination. Revelation tells us where we're headed. Jesus told us where we're headed. The Bible is clear from what we see in the Tower of Babel back in Genesis chapter 11 all the way straight through through Revelation chapter 18 when it's on a global scale. The mystery of iniquity is the product of where sinful man is ultimately going to end up. And it's going to end up with a one-world ruler who promises a solution to all of the world's problems, but then sticks the knife in the back of mankind and shows himself to be a deceiver. It's the mystery of iniquity. And Paul says it's already at work. 
It's at work in its process, in society, and in man personally. And its product is on its way as we watch the world system devolve into what God says it will ultimately become. The mystery of iniquity is already at work. But notice what he says about it next. He says, only he who now letteth, and that word means restrains or keeps back, only he who now letteth will let or restrain until he be taken out of the way. Paul is saying that there is something that's in the world right now that is keeping the mystery of iniquity from fulfilling all of its potential. It keeps degradation and corruption from coming to its ultimate culmination. There's something in the way that's keeping it back. What is it? Some have said, it's the Holy Spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit. I hear hear the gasps. Listen, it's very logical. People are going to get saved during the tribulation period, aren't they? There's 144,000 Jewish evangelists that will go forth and preach the gospel. There's an angel that will fly through the heavens proclaiming the everlasting gospel. People are going to get saved. Revelation says there's an innumerable multitude that are saved out of great tribulation. There's people that get saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. It says, no man can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Ghost. So how do people get saved if the Holy Spirit isn't present, isn't there? The Spirit will be present. That's the whole point of Psalm 139. Where can I go from your Spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I descend to hell, you're there. There's no place that God's Spirit isn't present. Also, what did Jesus say in Mark chapter 5? I think it's verse 13, also in Matthew uh, chapter 24. He said that they will drag you before the the, the courts in the synagogues, and the magistrates. And he that kills you will think that he's doing God's service. What does Jesus say? Don't premeditate what you're going to say. Because it is not you that speak, but the spirit of your father that speaketh in you. That's during the tribulation. So the spirit is present on the earth during the tribulation period. That's clear. So who is it that restrains? Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Jesus said this. He said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast under the foot of men and trodden. Now, many people have read that verse, including this preacher right here sitting on the stool. And have said, I'm such terrible salt, Lord. I've lost my saltiness. Please don't trample me under the foot of men. No, 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 no. Listen, listen, listen. Read the verse again, because it isn't talking about the salt that's going to be trampled under the foot. It's talking about the world. Listen, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its savor, wherewith shall it, that is the earth, be salted? How will the earth be salted if the salt is not savored? It, the earth, is henceforth good for nothing. That is, listen carefully, if you and I, The preserving factor. What does salt do? Besides bring out flavor, it preserves. Once the preserving factor is removed, it, the earth, is henceforth good for nothing. And it will devolve into the depths of iniquity and all that it is. He that restrains is the church. 
until Paul tells us, First Thessalonians chapter, I'm sorry, Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse seven. He says, "Until he be taken out of the way." And then notice verse eight. And then shall that wicked or wicked one be revealed. That is the Antichrist, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Antichrist is not revealed until the salt is removed, until the church is taken out. The rapture happens before the signing of the covenant. That's number three in your notes if you're taking notes. Number four, and this is kind of a quick one, which I know you're like, good, goodness gracious, please, let's get out of here, you know. Number four is that the church, biblically, is never seen in the scriptures on the earth during the tribulation time. When you read the book of Revelation, you see in chapters two and three, seven letters addressed to seven churches. It speaks to the church, it speaks about the church, but it also gives us a a prophetic timetable of what the church age will look like. And all of what Jesus has to say to the church is in Revelation chapters two and chapter three. Chapter 4, verse 1, which we looked at last week, or maybe it was the week before, I don't even know now. That gives to us the picture of the rapture. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said unto me, come up here, and I will show you the things which must be hereafter. The rapture happens there, and then the tribulation doesn't start until chapter 6, verse 1. When the rider on the white horse goes forth, conquering and to conquer. It's a picture of Antichrist riding a white horse. He looks like Christ. He's got a sword in his hand. He carries with him the authority. But yet he goes forth, conquering and to conquer, even as Daniel describes Antichrist to be. It's the revelation of Antichrist. And listen, for the duration of the tribulation, chapters 6 through 19, the church is never once seen or mentioned. Now, don't you think if the church was on earth, even for the first half of the tribulation, there would be some mention of them or of us? But there's not. The church not mentioned there. Why? Because we're not here. We're in heaven. The church not mentioned on earth during that time. And then number five, our final reason. And there are more, but I'm being gracious to you. you know. <laughs> number five is that Jesus spoke of his second coming as that of a wedding feast. In John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, right before Jesus was about to go to the cross, Jesus said these words. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place... I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It was the promise of his second coming, but he spoke of it in the context and in the terms of a Hebrew or Jewish wedding ceremony. See, when, when, when the Jews would get married, when they would go through that custom, there was a very specific order of events that would take place when they would do it. First of all, there would be an espousal. There would be an agreement that was made either between the couple themselves or between their parents and there would be a price that is paid, a dowry that would be given 
to ensure that the guy wasn't a creep or that he wasn't a good for nothing, that he could, could show that he could supply, that he could provide. Many reasons for the dowry. It's probably something we should bring back. What do you think, dads? You know. But there was a price that was paid as there was an espousal, a promise, an agreement, a ring was exchanged that, that, that we're going to get married, we're going to spend eternity for, together. But then after the espousal, there would be a departure. And the man would leave, probably leave town. He would leave the, the appearance, he would leave the presence of his bride-to-be. Good idea. <laughs> engaged couples <laughs> separate you know there would be a separation and and they would go their way and he would go back to his father's land or his father's house or his father's property and he would prepare a place for his bride there would be a time of mutual preparation he would go and prepare a place for his bride but she would also adorn herself she would get prepared jenny craig <laughs> Weight Watchers, you know, she she would get her hair, you know, she would do everything to just get ready for that time. Because here's the thing. She wouldn't know the day or the hour that her groom to be was going to come back to claim his prize. To get his bride, it would be a surprise return. It's the way that they did it. It could be at midnight. It could be at the coming of the morning at the sounding of the rooster it could be at any time and so she had to be ready she had to be waiting because she didn't know when all things would be set and you know what's amazing is that not even the groom would know only the father of the groom would know the time when the when the thing would be and when everything was prepared and ready the groom would say to his son i mean sorry the father would say to his son go get her the time is now things are prepared go and get your bride And so he would load up and they would make it a big pompous procession. You know, there would be, you know, instruments played. The whole family would go. There would be bells on the carriage, you know, and and they would go and they could come at any time for the bride to be as she would be waiting, as she would be ready there. And then there would be a marriage ceremony. And here's the thing in the Jewish tradition is that it was always a week long. It was a seven day ceremony. Seven days long, they would have this festivity, this party, this, this celebration of this marriage, this unity that would happen. And that was the context in which Jesus spoke of his espousal to his people, that's you and I, his departure as he went and prepared, as we are also to prepare ourselves for his return. And now at any moment when the father says, all things are now ready, go son, go get your bride. The angels will descend with the Son of God in the clouds. The trumpet will sound and we will be carried away and we will then be tucked away while all hell is breaking out on earth for seven years of tribulation. We will be tucked away for seven years, a week long, a heptad, a period of seven as we're in heaven with the Lord celebrating. And Paul said, so shall we ever be with the Lord. It's a seven-year ceremony. And so the Bible, to me at least, is clear. Our hope, the thing that we're awaiting, is not the signing of a covenant or the rebuilding of a temple or the beginning of the judgment of God to fall upon the planet Earth. But our hope lies in the eminent and soon return of Jesus Christ as he comes back for his bride to claim his prize upon the earth. So what are we to do? 
How does Paul close out chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians in light of these things? In chapter 5, verse 4, he says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. For you are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. And they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake, that is, whether we die, or whether we live, or sleep, or die, We should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even also as you do. His exhortation to them and to us, in light of the times that we live in and the hope that we have, he tells us these things, that we're to be aware, that we're to watch, that we're to understand the times that we live in and see the geopolitical spectrum for what it is, not through the lens of man's wisdom and man's strategy, but through the lens of what God has told us is coming upon this earth. We're to be aware. We're also to be sober. Not just literally, not boozing it up, that's not what he means, but we're to be spiritually sober. That is aware of what's going on, what the Lord is doing, both in our lives personally and around us, to be sober. He tells us that we're to grow, that we're to put on the breastplate of faith and hope and for a helmet or, and love and the hope of salvation, you know, that we're to be growing in our relationship with the Lord. Not further away. I mean, hey, what if the bride never prepared herself? What if she was sitting on the couch and she really let herself go and she was just eating bonbons and, hey, you know, hey, he'll come or whatever, whatever, you know, and she, she, she's got a moo-moo on and she's just sitting there and, you know, and all of a sudden the trumpet sounds, she's not ready, you know. And so we're to be prepared, we're to be ready, we're to be growing. He tells us that we're to be putting on hope, that we're to be hoping in the second coming of Christ, not in despair, Not being overcome of depression, but trusting in the Lord that his timing is right and his ways are perfect. That we're to trust him and that we're to be mutually comforting and edifying each other. It's interesting to me as we close to think about all the times that have come and gone throughout the history of man upon the earth. There was the time of the flood. The days just before it when the world was so corrupt and that one man Noah just working away, building, testifying to the world that judgment is coming, that God is going to interrupt and intervene. There was the days of the judges where there was chaos in Israel and iniquity in the nations around when things were just unstable and undone, you know. It was the time of the kings when God was moving in particular ways and, and of all the prophets. And I think of Elijah and Daniel and Isaiah and the men that, and women that God have used in times past. There was the days of the early church when God was establishing his work on the earth. And then all of the segments of church history and its ups and downs and highs and lows and revivals and death, you know, and all the times throughout church history. And just consider this for a minute. The days that we live in, the times in which we find ourselves watching the prophetic picture come together exactly as the Bible has foretold, seeing the Jews now in their land as God prophesied would happen just before the return of Christ, all things in line for all chaos to break loose in that 
crazy area, that region that's so unstable, so unsteady. Watching culture and society convene in all that God said would be the picture of the last days. And just consider with me for one minute. God didn't choose Daniel for these days. He didn't choose Noah. He didn't choose David or Isaiah or Elisha. He didn't put Peter or Paul here on this planet for times such as these. But God, somehow in his wisdom, chose you and I. He saw you and I here at this time in days like these to be privileged to see the things that he's doing in in the times that we're in. And so what do we do? In, In light of who we are and who he is and what he said and what's to come, what are we to do? What do we do? Well, what did Daniel do when he realized he was in prophetically significant times? He began to pray. He just said, Lord, what do you want to do with me? What do you want to show me? What might you want to speak that might be of value to the people that are around me, that I might encourage them or help them or even save them? Maybe for you, it's to pray. For some of you, maybe it's get saved. Maybe tonight you heard for the first time with understanding that God sent his son to absorb the full weight of the wrath of God that you deserved. Think of it. That means everything that happens in Revelations 6 through 19, the tribulation, the bowls, the fires, the pestilence, the floods, the blood, all of it, the equivalent of that was laid upon Christ on your behalf. And God is still reaching out to you right now saying, will you give your life to me? Will you receive the gift of my salvation? Will you allow me to come into your life? Because it's paid in full right now. But the age of grace will end. And then there's a time of tribulation to face. Maybe for you, the word is get saved. For Some of us, maybe the word is begin to live this life. Start to live the thing that you profess, the thing that you believe. You know, it's interesting to me, when I think of Noah, he was a man that was perceived as crazy by the outside world, but his children followed. His kids said, you know what? Maybe his message is a little out there, but we see the stability in his life. And his kids and their wives, they followed with Noah, and they were saved. His family was secure. On the other hand, there was another man whose name was Lot. And on the night before Sodom was to be destroyed, the angel warned Lot, go get your family members. And it says that Lot went out and he warned his sons and daughters about what was to come. And it says some of the saddest words. It says, but he seemed to them to be as one that mocked. They laughed at him. And they said, you're out of your mind. Why? Because though he was professing the coming of God's judgment and the things of the kingdom of God, his life was not in line with the word that he was preaching and his kids didn't follow and they were swallowed in the destruction of Sodom. And so maybe for some of us, the word tonight is live it. You're professing this word, this gospel, and your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, they're watching. And our message, perhaps it's a little bit crazy. Yeah, people are going to disappear. <laughs> You know, but when they see the stability of your life, just like Noah's sons, they'll follow. They see it. They hear it. The heralding trumpet is calling. Shall we pray together? Father, we thank you tonight for your word. 
that you so graciously told us before the things that are coming. Now I pray that you would now take the things that we heard, maybe some things confusing. Maybe there's questions we still have, but Lord, take what we've heard and seal it in our hearts. And help us, Lord, to see the world through the lens of your word and that our lives might be in perfect accordance with your will. I pray that each one of us would be fruitful, that our lives would count to their fullest potential. Above all things, Lord, I pray that we would know you, that we wouldn't just know about you or be able to profess things concerning you, but that we would really know you. Paul's prayer was that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. If by any means I might be made conformable to his image and that I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Lord, I pray tonight that you would grace each one of us with a deeper relationship with you pray that you would meet with us, Lord, with each one of us in the night season. That you would awaken us out of sleep and speak to us. That you would give us vision and insight into things as we're just going through our day. That you would help us to live the abiding life that you provide. I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit tonight, Lord. That you would give us wisdom concerning our course, where we are. That you'd give us instruction as to what we're to do. That you would bring conviction concerning the things that are going on in our lives. And that you would use us, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you would come back. But we also pray for those that don't know you yet. I pray right now, Lord, as pictures of people and faces are flashing through the mind of your people sitting here. Lord, we pray for each one of those people. We ask, Lord, that you would bring the conviction of sin upon them. That they would recognize their need for a Savior. And that they would call upon you and be saved. We pray that you would bring circumstances and situations into their lives, people into their path, that will bring to them the word of truth and that you would move them to salvation. And Lord, come quickly. In Jesus' name, come quickly, we pray. Maranatha, in Jesus' name. Let's all stand together.